Welcome back, everybody, to the Motion Picture Show. Hello. We are your hosts, Lena Khatib and Claudia Musical. Today, we have a fun movie for you guys. This is one we discussed doing for a while, so I'm excited to talk about it. We are doing the 1954 Alfred Hitchcock film, Rear Window. perfect Alfred Hitchcock movie we thought for the pandemic specifically because it all takes place in someone's apartment and with an apartment building which is kind of probably where we all are you know stuck in our homes. Funny because the first time I watched Rear Window I never thought that this movie would be so relatable but here we are. The whole thing is a guy is stuck in his apartment for seven weeks because he has like a full leg hip lower body cast and I don't know. That's sad that that's really relatable right now. So like I said, the film came out in September 1954. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and written by John Michael Hayes. And it was actually based on a short story by Cornell Woolrich. The film stars James Stewart as L.B. Jeff Jeffries and Grace Kelly as Lisa Carol Fremont. It had a budget of $1 million and grossed over $37 million worldwide. It was made by Alfred J. Hitchcock Productions and distributed by Paramount Pictures. And like Claudia was talking about the plot a little bit, the log line is as follows. A wheelchair-bound photographer spies on his neighbors from his apartment window and becomes convinced one of them has committed murder. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) I just wanted to mention that the story is based on a short story. And in that, I found out that You don't even find out the main character is in a cast until like the last page at the very end. And I just don't even understand how that would work. And there's no love story and no additional neighbors. So I'm like, this is definitely an improvement. There's no way you could have a movie that's just what the short story was. So of course they had to elaborate. So bland. Yeah. And I wonder, I I want to read the story now because I'm like, do you think that he's some like creepy voyeur neighbor the whole time? Right. So actually, you're right. That could be kind of an interesting story. It would just play up the voyeurism more, which is a big theme in the movie as well, but it would make it a bit creepier in the short story. So we should probably read that. Which it makes sense why Hitchcock didn't go with that direction, because even though his movies are very suspense and there's murder and all this crime and like high stakes drama, it's still in the 1950s. So like being a creepy neighbor voyeur for audiences to kind of root for is... Something that I don't think would really fly. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it would have done as well in the box office that year, which it was, I think, the highest grossing movie that year. So wouldn't probably have done that if it went the more art housey, creepy vibe. And I'm I'm pretty pleased with what it turned out to be. So I think each thing has its own place and it makes sense. Like, you know, we you always talk about like, okay, what should my story be? A novel, a screenplay, a TV show you know, a move, a feature film. And that's something Lena and I've been talking about a lot lately. And it can be a little hard to decide what your story is going to be. But 
I think this kind of hit it on the head. About that, the, the okay, so when I was in high school, I was in a lot of like the upper level English classes. And I think it was my junior or senior year teacher would always ask us when we were reading a text, why the story this way? And that's a question that sticks with me like forever. And even when I'm writing and what you were just saying, it's like, why tell the story this way? That's so important to think about when talking about this film, because there, like you already pointed out, there was creative decisions changed between the short story versus what we see on the film. And it's like, why the story this way? So why not? change it for the film or why did you have to change it for the film versus what was in the short story and of right. course you have to add the romance like of course of course it's a Hollywood picture and I mean it was during that time we needed that romance and I always like a romance and I'm actually really happy because Lena you've told me recently that you feel better about knowing which thing your story is and that's something that I honestly hope that I can get better at too yeah, it it's really freeing when you realize that a story should be told a certain way because as a writer you are you're not really in control of the writing as much as you might think you are. So you yeah. have to like listen, right? You have to listen to the story, you have to listen to your characters, you have to listen and be like, okay, what do these people need? What do they want? What is this world? And then go from there and that can drastically change an idea from what you thought it would be or should be to what the film ended up being. Which I totally get that, but I'm so like non-committal and I just, I'm kind of like a debater type personality. So I love to be like, oh, but like, what if we did do it like this for this and then like that? And then it's hard for me to commit to one form. So I need to, I really need to work on my commitment to one thing. Well, I mean, even what you're saying is not wrong, you know, of course, debate, like, why shouldn't this character do this instead or try this? You know, there's no harm in putting your characters in situations and seeing how it plays out before making a decision. You know what I mean? So like, uh, yeah, it's part of the work, but I need yeah. to eventually choose. Like I, that's what yeah. I need to do eventually. <laughs> and right. Maybe, like sooner than I want to. Yeah. But I'm glad that in this instance, Hitchcock chose to add the character of Lisa. Cause I love yeah. Lisa. Like, I, I love, love Lisa. This movie would be nothing without Lisa, everybody, okay? And I love the neighbors. Like, if we only had the murder, that would be so boring. Like, I love that we get to see all the rest of the neighbors, which kind right, of gets right. us back into the movie. Um, do you want to talk about, do you remember, I guess, your first viewing of it? Yeah, so I actually watched this movie for the first time when I was in undergrad. Uh, I took a class that was all about Hitchcock's films. It's because I studied English in college, but we had these like literary film classes. I don't know how literary they really were, but they were very much like film classes. But the way that they connected, it was like, oh, um, why don't we read this short story or this novel? And then, oh, look, somebody adapted it into a movie. And then we just like watched all of their movies. Okay, <laughs> that sounds like the most fun. I love classes that kind of just feel like you're in some kind of like cool film club, but really you're like getting college credit. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was so great. I took as many of them as I possibly could. And one of them was all about Hitchcock. I'm trying to remember what even the short story or like the book, because I don't, did Hitchcock do any, oh, well, this is an adaptation, but like, I'm trying to think of anything else as an adaptation. From Hitchcock? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think a lot of his work are it's based on like a lot of short stories, honestly, mostly in that realm. Yeah, see how like I don't remember any of the story, the literary. It's about the movies. That class was about the movies. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so I watched it in that class and I I don't remember too much about it. I just remember it stuck out to me from Hitchcock's films. And I liked the whole like voyeur aspect of it and I liked how simple the story was and I liked how you can watch it and like the way that he created so much tension by from like a guy just sitting in a room watching his neighbors like it's if you think about it like it's kind of mind-blowing that he was able to do that yeah I completely agree and I mean I think that's you know a sign of his mastery of his art yeah and I know Claudia you have a really cool story about how the first time you watched Rear Window so let's hear it I want I want you to share it Uh, Okay, so when I was, gosh, I'm forgetting the exact age, but like a teenager, maybe 15, 14, 15, um, I did my very first summer program in New York City, which is like a very big deal when you're a little teenager. And, you know, that's like a very big ballet hub. So I was doing a summer intensive there uh, at Steps on Broadway. I I think I was 15. We're going to go with 15. And, um, they didn't have dorms for the summer program. So, uh, I kind of did, I'm not really sure we didn't have Airbnbs really back then. So it was kind of like a, when you're like, when you're an exchange student and you like stay at someone's house type of thing, but I wasn't an exchange student. I didn't exchange any other person, but I found someone whose house I could stay in. And, um, it was this really cool lady that I ended up living with for, you know, maybe like at least like a month that summer. And I, finally remembered her name. I'm pretty sure it was Cordelia. Okay. A really pretty classy name. And she was older at the time. I, she looked really ageless. She, so I can't say for sure, but she was definitely like at least 40, 50, 60, but like, that's how ageless she was. Right. And, You're like, uh, so it's like a 20 year age gap. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I was staying at her house and I had been to New York, uh, a couple times before, but this was my first experience, you know, staying there for a more extended period of time as an older, um, person. And well, when I got there, she, you know, we talked and hit it off and everything and she's really nice. And then I remember she was telling me about, um, like why she wanted to move to New York and she had seen the movie rear window and she thought it was so cool, like such a great depiction of the city. And she thought it was so thrilling to think of like being able to look out your window and see all these really cool, exciting city neighbors. And that that was just an exhilarating thought to her and, you know, really inspired her New York city life decision. And so she had told me about the movie and then she ended up leaving the DVD on my bed one day. So I came home on the subway after ballet class. And then I was like, Oh, this looks really interesting. Um, and I watched my little DVD. That's giving me a little bit of a time marker there <laughs> when yeah. you watch DVDs. Good old DVDs. Uh, so, you know, here I was, um, I was staying, her apartment was in Harlem. And so there I was and in my bedroom and I got to watch this movie actually in New York, a Harlem window at my neighbors after and see what they were up to. And 
yeah, it was just a really special way to see that movie for me and kind of like experientially live it. That's amazing, honestly. To get to watch a movie about New York in the 1950s and New York in the 2010s, you know, or 20. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. so me because, like, I thought I was a Hollywood movie star when I was like 14 and 50, 15. Like, that's what I was aspiring to be. So <laughs> it was nice, a nice little touch and made my stay there very special. That's my story. And I feel like we can move into the movie. Cordelia, right? That's her name, the lady that you got to stay with. I can't say for sure, but I really think so. Okay, we're going to call her Cordelia, whether or not that's her name. And if that's not your name and you're listening to us, we apologize. I'm really sorry. I, I just know it was like a beautiful, amazing name. And Cordelia is a good one for me. So I would imagine that she must have seen that movie relatively close to when it came out. But I also know that and maybe you can touch upon this when we get to the trivia. Didn't it? It was like not available for a little while or something. Yeah. To film? I mean, I'll just touch on it now. Yeah. So basically, uh, this movie is one of, I believe, five Hitchcock films that was unavailable to see for about 30 years. Um, Film buffs like to call them the five lost Hitchcocks. And this is because Hitchcock himself bought back the rights from the studios. um, And I guess he wanted to leave them as the legacy for his daughter. I'm not really sure how that works. But, you know, they were, like, released in theaters, and then he just bought them back, so nobody had the rights to play them. Okay. Which is really a weird story. Like, you'd think you'd want your movie out there, but I guess he was successful enough to be able to do that and still maintain his popularity. Maybe it was, like, a thing that even increased it. I don't know. Oh, wow. Well, because that makes me think, like, maybe this lady you stayed with watched it when it first came out or, like, watched it on some, like, weird, like secret version of watching the movie because it was gone for like well, 30 years they did, they did play it illegally once on tv when they weren't supposed to oh that's so funny like i just imagine her as like this young woman who like watches it on tv the illegal stream of it yeah and is like so inspired to move to new york and have that life yeah and this is my fantasy version of what happened is it true who knows who cares but <laughs> yeah. It's fun to speculate and have theories, which is what this movie is even about. They're speculating and having theories about their neighbors the whole time. Right. Totally. Um, I watched this movie actually about a little over a month ago, and then I watched it again last night right before we recorded. And I really, really actually enjoyed it a lot more the second time after just seeing it a month prior. I mean, I've seen it years before that, but it truly is one of those movies that you can watch again and again and it stays interesting which is not every movie and I just had such an appreciation for everything and it just became more meaningful the more I watched it I mean I would love to hear more about that because I've seen the movie twice once in college and then once recently for the podcast and I definitely agree that I liked it better the second time around but Mm -hmm. I also hadn't seen it in so long that the second time I was watching it, I was still watching it for plot because I kind of yeah. remembered what happened, but like couldn't really remember what happened. And I watched it with my partner and he'd never seen it before. So I was kind of like watching it, like watching him, you know, how we all do that. Watching, Yeah, you want to see it if they like it. But OK, here's yeah. what I found, even though I had seen it just a month ago and then I watched it again last night, 
Last night, I still couldn't remember, like, what happened and if he killed his wife and stuff, which is so ridiculous because I'd seen it a month before. Like, I kind of knew that he did, but I was also like, I don't really remember how it goes down. Okay, but isn't that kind of the genius of this film? Yes. Where you're like, wait, did he do it? Did he not do it? Even though you know yeah. that he did it, you're like, but did he? <laughs> yeah, like, it's not really about whether he did it or not. And by the end, you don't get any super large details about, like, how he really did it or where the body is. Like, I guess he threw it in the river or something. But it's more just piecing right. together that he did it. It's not like this dramatic outcome that happens at the end. It's just like, okay, we finally got the validation that he did do it. Um, but, yeah, it's really just about that, you know, playing with your mind all the way through. Right. That's and fun. how, like, being cooped up for weeks can, like, make you feel... Like you're imagining things, which yeah. I'm sure all of us can super relate to right now after being cooped up for, I don't know, it's, it's too long, but. Basically, I, I'm just going to start at the very beginning. I mean, every detail of this movie is good. So truly, you can't like find a moment that for me, it's okay to skip in this like or not pay attention to because since I had just seen it about a month ago, I thought, oh, I might just like skim through it. But no, no, I was actually rewinding to catch details more again. So it was like the opposite of skimming through it because I wanted all of those details, um, which I tend to do a lot anyway. But with this, I was like, oh, no, like every single moment is of value. So I think yeah. that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying it gets better each viewing. I would say that that speaks a lot about Hitchcock as a director because he's so detail and specific. And mm -hmm. I've heard, and I think I learned this in my class, that a lot of the editors that worked for him hated working for him because he gave them no coverage, which for those of you who don't know, coverage is basically you get like a few more shots uh, of a scene or a moment. So that way the editor can have something to cut back and forth to if they want to or kind of like play with the movement of the scene um, in terms of editing, right? But with Hitchcock, he only shot exactly the frames he wanted shown. And so yeah. the editors had no coverage to cut through. They only had the exact cuts that Hitchcock wanted. Which, you know, I think, I don't know if it's Hitchcock, but I've definitely heard of directors around that time period doing that on purpose so that the studios wouldn't mess up their film in the edit. So they were like editing as they shot. So they didn't have anything extra. So it had to be the version that they wanted. Well, that's so funny. Now that I know that's because of the execs, that makes it like even better as <laughs> like yeah. a layer. Well, you know, it was such like a, the huge studio system back then. And honestly, I think we could even probably like struggle with that today. But I just don't think they would really let it fly to like not have the extra coverage now. Yeah, but we probably learned. Then, yeah, that was a form of control for the directors to get the cut that they wanted. Wow, that's so smart. Because, you know, not every director gets final cut is what it's called where yeah yeah decides exactly what the movie looks like and sometimes producers have final cut instead mm -hmm. so this is like so genius that this is a way to force <laughs> yeah it is cut. but it's like dangerous like coming to you as a director like oh my god not having enough coverage though is also very scary like yeah for yourself <laughs> well, like, this, is, this is why it's like such a power move for Hitchcock specifically because like at this point, he's done so many movies. He knows how to do it. 
Yeah. Like younger, newer director. Yes. So, yeah. To do I this, you must have lots of experience under your belt. <laughs> yes. Do it and pull it off as well as he did. Yeah, you have to be a very experienced director. Okay, I guess can we just like get into talking about the actors in this and the yeah. acting? One thing I did notice initially was that James Stewart has the biggest credit and then it goes to everybody else like even Grace Kelly is under him which at first surprised me because like I would definitely in my mind nowadays I consider them equally big if not her being bigger although probably equally but then I was like oh wait a minute they have a huge age gap um so she probably wasn't very well known at this point yet so he was definitely the bigger actor yeah which happening it's it's funny hearing you say that to me because this is the first thing and I think only movie I've seen with Grace Kelly in it. Uh, so I had no idea who Grace Kelly was before I had seen this movie, but I knew who James Stewart was. I've seen him in so many films before this. So I wasn't shocked to hear that his name was bigger. But then you bring up this point. It's like, oh, wait, but Grace Kelly is Grace Kelly. Like, there was this song that I used to listen to in high school, and I think it was called Grace Kelly, if I'm not wrong, by Mika. So to me, she was definitely the bigger star, and like there were so many references to her because it was like the whole chorus of the song is like, I want to look like Grace Kelly, but my looks were too sad, or like something ridiculous <laughs> like that. So I was like, oh, yeah, obviously, like she's like such a glamorous blonde icon, and you know, even her name, like Grace Kelly is so perfect because I feel like, you know, she's not a Marilyn Monroe blonde type or like some bombshell. No. She's this other Grace Kelly blonde type, you know? Yeah, she's her own type of woman. And honestly, the first time we see her, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I was so blown away by her. I was like, oh, my God. She is a star, like capital S star. <laughs> okay, so this, okay, interesting, because I definitely, I mean, she always like a glowing angel every time she enters his apartment. But like you said, I don't really know if I've seen her in anything else, because I don't think I've seen like High Society. Oh, I think I've seen her in other Hitchcock films, but I think that's it. And I know she didn't do so many movies because... Once she married, I believe, the Prince of Monaco, she had to quit acting because that wasn't like an okay thing to do once you were a royal and she became Princess Grace of Monaco. So that may explain why we haven't seen her in as many movies as well because she just didn't have such a huge career because I think she retired at like 27 or something. What is up with all these princes and like falling in love with actresses? Like it's totally a thing with the royals. Yeah. I guess I get it. I don't know. It's like this, you know, fantasy kind of thing. It's like, oh, a beautiful Hollywood actress. Right. But then you can't ever work again as a Hollywood actress (laughs) after you get married. (laughs) Right. Which I guess Grace Kelly, you know, Hitchcock wanted her to do another role in a film and she wanted to kind of do it. But then, you know, the people wouldn't have it because I think she had to portray you know, a character doing something kind of shady, like stealing or something like that. I can't remember for sure. And, you know, it's just like, you can't have that image as a royal, which to me, I'm like, F that. But, you know, that is what it is, I guess. Right. I guess that's what you sign up for when you fall in love with the prince. Yeah. So she was going to do it. And then it was like, oh, man, no, I can't. 
Yeah. So actually she retired at age 26. So I think that's just about wow. a year after this movie. I think she's 25 in this, which she also celebrated her uh, birthday on set, which I believe is November. I have it here. 12. And she is a Scorpio in case anybody wanted to know. Oh, wow. I'm surprised, but then not. <laughs> well, I want to know uh, what you think Lisa is, what her sign would be. <sighs> a Libra. Yeah. <laughs> I said that real fast. <laughs> and what about Jeff? Mm, possibly an Aquarius man, which I hear they're horrible, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Just because no, I... he, like, wants what he, like, can't have, and he wants, like, that independence, and that just says Aquarius to me. Right. And he's very secretive and doesn't want people in his business. <laughs> Why do I feel like you're giving me shade right now, Lena? No, I'm giving all Aquarius. I have so many Aquarius in my life. I love them all, but they're, they're so funny to me sometimes. Let's not forget, isn't that your moon, Lena? So yeah, it is. Throwing shade about myself. myself. <laughs> shade oh my towards God. myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm holding you to that. Since we're on the topic of characters, though, I want to know who's your favorite character? Who's your favorite neighbor in the courtyard? easy answer and you know what I'm gonna say and everybody who knows me knows what I'm gonna say but the ballet dancer who lives across from him her name is Miss Torso yes officially and 100% that's my favorite she reminded me so much of you I was like that's Claudia right there that's literally me like just updated a little bit to 2020 and me in the pandemic like she's dancing around her apartment doing ballet literally what I'm doing and she's basically wearing like these little tiny outfits that I feel like would be equivalent to today's lingerie because back then it was like more scandalous to be in like a tiny little bra top and like booty shorts. Yeah. And I've literally been wearing bikinis at home the entire pandemic because I started <laughs> taking up pole dancing. So um, and I live with like a big window. Um, I'm not really sure if people can see me from my window in my I living room. I don't know either because where you are, it's kind of like you're up on a hill. So it's exactly. Yeah. But Andrew is absolutely my partner, boyfriend, lover is absolutely convinced that everybody can see me. So he's like constantly having a heart attack when I'm in my bikini (laughs) and doing ballet and dancing around. He calls it my stage right next to the window. And he's like, get off your stage, get off your stage. Um, if I'm like being inappropriate that. at the window. No, I love that he calls it your stage. That's so that's so cute. Cause for me, uh we live right across the street from a uh old folks home, right? I forgot what their their official term is. Nursing and home. all all the time, all their windows are completely closed. We have our blinds wide open all the time in our apartment, and there's like privacy even though technically there isn't because there's people right across the way but we're always joking like they can't even see like <laughs> that's so true I was gonna say like they could be secretly spying on you but you're right they can't even see yeah. even if they are secretly spying on us like they're like 70 like okay you're like it's fine yeah <laughs> yeah Miss Torso is definitely my one of my favorites but and I relate to her the most because did you notice this, Lena? She's literally always dancing or eating or flirting with men. Oh it's my like God, I love that. my three favorite activities. Just <laughs> yeah. kidding. I hate men. Um, <laughs> but I do like to eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As 
Lena can attest to. Well, it makes sense because you are an athlete. So you have to eat more than, you know, the average person who's not an athlete. Right. And I think they get that really, that detail really right in the story. Because if she's literally dancing around her apartment all day, which I'm wondering why she's doing that all day when she's not in a pandemic, because I wouldn't be dancing at home so much if I could go out to class and dance. So I'm like, girl, what are you doing? You're not stuck there. (laughs) Right. Like, don't you have class to go to? <laughs> yeah. Um, but One detail Hitchcock overlooked. <laughs> yeah, he just wanted to have, like, ample time to show her dancing in her apartment. And then I do also really love, I think her name's Miss Lonely Heart. I just think that's, like, yeah. such a fun, brilliant, tragically campy character. Yeah, I, I love her character, too. But yeah, who is your favorite, Lena? I really like the neighbor who plays the piano just because it's really nice score for the film. It is, which that's, he's a real composer in real life. His, or did I say in real life? Did I say that? I speak the Hitchcockianness of it. I'm just thinking murder weapons. In real life, his name is Ross. I might butcher the last name, Bogdazarian. Okay. And he's a real composer. And I, yeah, I think the music he plays is absolutely beautiful. That's awesome. And my other uh, favorite character is the neighbor lady. Like, she's the one who sunbathes outside all day. Oh, with the red hair. She's, like, always, like, sunbathing in her little bikini. And then she, like, falls asleep with the newspaper on her face. Yeah, I love her. Because her outfits are so cute. And every time I see her outfits, I'm like, it's so funny how fashion repeats so much. Because... This is the 50s, and the outfit she wears looks almost like the same, like, silhouette as the outfit um, Winona Ryder's character Kim wears in Edward Scissorhands. She wears this, like, yellow outfit. Oh, you're right. And you're right. very similar silhouette. Right. Which I, yeah, I think the movie, Edward Scissorhands I, was supposed to be set in the, like, not a, spe- a very specific time, but it took a lot of influence, I think, from the... 50s yeah or 40s um but then it also had that 80s spin which we talk about in our other episode but, but I also love like, the fact that she's like 60 and wearing these cute little outfits I know I love it too because I'm like that's gonna be me I'll be like this older woman and just still wear cute outfits and never I wear quote-unquote like old people clothes I don't even know what that's supposed to mean but I'm just gonna always wear whatever I want to wear and I love that outfit and I love that she does that in this movie me too. Let's be in bikinis when we're 80. <laughs> yes. And I have to ask, because, you know, it is a Hitchcock film. He puts himself in every movie. Did you catch where he was this time? Okay, no. I still didn't, and I was looking for it. I would, like, pause every time, because I knew where it was supposed to be, and I, like, couldn't find him. I don't know what my deal was. So he is in the piano composer's apartment at one point and he's fixing like the clock I believe or something so he comes in to fix something on the wall and then he's in there very briefly and that's his little cameo in this feature okay because since I just watched it a month before I missed it because I wasn't paying attention so then I watched it again this time and I still missed it and I don't know how and okay that's like what makes it so fun though because like, are you gonna? It's like, where's Waldo? But where's yeah? Right? He does it in his own movies, and I love it. Okay, let's talk. Can we talk about the relationship between Lisa and LB Jeffries? Jeff, I love, I love it every time, even more. Like every time I see it, I like it even more because it's just so 
realistic in my opinion and it's refreshing because most movies during that time period I don't feel are as relatable as this relationship is depicted you know they're a lot more like grand and dramatic and extreme and then this one is so down to earth and I feel like I can still relate to it now in this time and like my most recent dating experience looked similar you know like yeah having dinner at one person's apartment when you don't live together the sleepovers and bringing clothes and I mean it's a little different because I unfortunately didn't bring this like amazing glamorous nightgown with me but (laughs) I did not bring lobster with me okay but (laughs) I did you know when she first comes when she first arrives Lisa and she's in this like gorgeous dress that's like stunning I remember when I was first dating my partner, like, I would totally do that. I would put on, like, the most glamorous, fancy outfit just to come to his house and sit around in his apartment like she's doing. You know, like, high heels. Like, why am I wearing high heels to go sit on your couch? <laughs> you know, sometimes oh, my God, I love that. But, you know. I mean, we, we never really got too much of a chance to do stuff like that um, just because of, like, what our living situations were like. Mm -hmm. Well, when we were dating, but I do remember the initial dates, though, I would always like every woman does, you know, you want to look really good. So you put on some makeup, you put on a cute outfit, you do the whole nine yarns. So it is very relatable. Mm -hmm. And even now, like living together, I'll, you know, dress cute every once in a while. And he'll just be like, Oh, and I'm like, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, which one thing is, okay, so let's talk about her job I get a little confused because I know she's a fashion model but I also get the feeling that she does more than just that because when she was going over her day it was like a busy day that seemed more like more than what just a model does some of the things she mentions not that it's a problem to only be a model but some of the stuff I, I was like oh this seems like maybe you're more on like the design side or like the marketing side and the fashion like you know buyer side or something like that yeah Did you have that impression I don't know exactly what I thought she would do, but I do get the idea that she was more of a model. But do you do you know if like during that time, if models were more involved with just like the brands or just in fashion in general than what it's turned into? Because um, I know it it was different. I can't say it was more involved, but I know they did have. It was more common back then where they had the really luxury stores and they would have the models be there for the buyers dressed up. But it sounded like she was going to lunch with a lady to get like spy info from Paris and stuff. So I was like, that that seems above what just a model would do. And then she was talking about how she like, they sold like dozens of these dresses that were a thousand one hundred dollars which oh my god, that's so expensive because that's even expensive today. So imagine how much that would have been. Right. That's probably like a five or $10,000 dress or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, for some reason, the first time I watched it a month ago, I thought that there was mention of her coming also from a wealthy family. Was that the case? Because I didn't get that this time around, but I know she was wealthy. Did I just assume it was her wealthy family? Kind of loaded because she has money to like have in a $1,000 dress. Even if, you know, that was given to her, she still had money to buy her and her boyfriend, a lobster dinner that was like delivered right. to them with like a butler dude. Right. So I, mean, I think she maybe comes from money. It kind of sounds like a money name, Lisa Carroll Fremont, you know? Yeah. And whether she comes from money or not, I do think that if she is 
only a model, which again, that's not even a remotely bad thing. I think she's probably one of the most like sought after models. And yeah. So I think that could explain why, you know, she had a meeting with this lady from Paris. Cause like, mm. think about the models today, like Gigi and like Bella, they get to do a lot of collaborations with designers. Like they know designers by first name basis. Like it's very different when you're a, uh, very well known like supermodel versus yeah, super like a a model that books like e commerce or whatever. Again, yeah. no nothing remotely bad about being any of those things. Like that's great. It's all cool. Yeah. Um. I but I do think that it does make a difference in terms of your opportunities and who you have access to. Which once again though, let's just talk about how relatable this is to the now because think about it. The Hadids and some of the other supermodels also have very wealthy parents. So it could yeah. very well be both. She's yeah. making a ton of money on her own and she came from wealth. Yeah, it could very much so be both. But either way, we do know that she definitely is wealthier than Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. yeah. And she is a Park Avenue girl where he's yeah. like, I don't know where he is, but it's not Park Avenue. Right. <laughs> You know, it's not like, uh, he doesn't seem dirt poor, but, like, the apartments are relatively small. They're not luxurious. They're nice enough. But, you know, it's not Park Avenue for sure. Yeah, which uh, I do want to discuss the set because this is a very cool, unique set. The set is actually extremely fascinating. At the time was the biggest set, I believe, ever built on Paramount Studios. Uh, which mm-hmm. right now, was the... Um, was Titanic Paramount or am I imagining things? I think they were Paramount. I'm going to double check while you uh, continue. Okay. So, you know, Titanic may have outdone it with sets after this, but it was entirely shot at Paramount Studios. And at first Hitchcock considered doing it um, like at a real apartment building, but then he was like super intrigued and into the idea of building like a really elaborate full scale set. There were 31 apartments within this set. Eight were completely furnished. It was five or six stories high. Um, A lot of the apartments had electricity and running water. It was a set to replicate like a typical Greenwich Village um, apartment building. So that's what it's kind of supposed to look like. I know that Hitchcock sent four photographers like around New York City to shoot apartments from all angles and under all weather and lighting conditions to make sure he made this set really accurate. That much attention to detail and trying to make it as realistic as possible to have some of the apartments have running water. That is like amazing. It's chef kiss. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Chef kiss for filmmaking. Uh, Which before we go too much into it, I did want to say that Titanic was 20th Century Fox, which remember we were saying that this could have tanked the studio, the Mm -hmm, movie Titanic mm -hmm. and our Titanic podcast. But that wasn't Paramount. It was 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Well, I thought I think maybe what I'm thinking of is Paramount gave a little money when Fox was like, we're not giving any more. So not related, but Paramount was a distributor. That's what it is. Ah, I knew it was related. I knew it. Yeah. (laughs) That's the connection point, but it's not what I thought it was. And so then after they did that, they were able to create within this apartment, like very elaborate lighting setups for um, four different times of day, early morning, you know, regular daytime, early evening and night. So those were four different setups and they used 
thousands of lights to do that. Basically used all the lights available that weren't on other Paramount sets at the time to do this for this one set. And they were able to change the different times of day within 45 minutes, which sounds like a long time. But as far as filmmaking goes, that's a pretty quick change. I mean, that's that's like, I'm so blown away about how older films use practical effects. I find it incredible that that movie was filmed on a soundstage and that Mm -hmm. set was built on a soundstage. And I don't know if you, I don't remember if you said this, but wasn't it like they even built like a basement or something? Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, they actually like excavated, like got rid of a basement because they needed another level. So his apartment was ground level, but then, you know, the courtyard outside of his apartment, that was the basement of the studio that they just like got rid of that floor and just went through it to make an additional level. So crazy to me, but like in every best possible way, like I love that. Yeah, I think it took something like 50 men over two months to build this whole set. That's incredible. And I think it was well worth it because the end result looks amazing. Like I thought it was shot in like New York City. (laughs) Me too. I mean, it's just great. And I understand why they would go to the trouble of building it because there's so much control there once you do that, which Hitchcock needs to deliver his genius. I mean, to be able to control whether it's daylight or nighttime within 45 minutes. Can you imagine from a production schedule? That's like so helpful. You don't even even have to wait for it to get dark outside. You could just shoot the night scenes during the day. Oh, you're right. That's a dream. That is an absolute dream. Um, I believe, you know, in the movie, it's supposed to be hot some of the days, like 80 degrees. And we see the neighbors kind of expressing that. Yeah. And I don't think they had to do a lot of faking with that because the people on the upper levels who were closest to the lights were really like dying under those lights because set lights can get extremely hot, which yeah. at one point they got so hot that they set off the studio sprinkler system. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of crazy. Wow. I know because in the beginning uh, of the film, you have a shot with the thermometer and it shows it's like almost 100 degrees to show you it's like the hot summer yeah yeah which also leads me to talk about all of the actors in this film besides like the main people uh grace kelly uh thelma ritter and the detective guy yeah you know you're close enough to them to like really talk with them but the rest of the actors kind of had to use their bodies more to act it wasn't so much lines or anything they had to show who they were through their body movements and what they did which I think is really cool as a ballet dancer because with classical ballet, you do have stories, but you can't talk. So you have to do that through your body, which we call pantomiming. Which we see that very, very well with um, Miss Lonely Hearts. Yes. We get a whole story arc with her and she never once says a word. But exactly. we see it through movement and visuals and we get what happens. Exactly, which I absolutely love that little detail, which another thing is all of the neighbors, their storylines, and then thus their costumes, which the costumes for this film were done by Edith Head, their costumes were specifically made to correlate with the main characters and how the 
neighbors connected to the main characters and who they were. So um, Miss Lonely Hearts, we see her in green, like emerald green, a lot of the time, right? Yeah. And that is because, well, okay, here's how it connects. She's in emerald green, and then Lisa, the character, we also see her in a green suit. And that connection is to be made as in the Miss Lonely Hearts and how Lisa can relate to that character and connect with her, which we also get through the dialogue because Lisa's like, oh, like, you know, sometimes she says she knows how certain neighbors feel, like, without talking to them. Like, she relates to the Miss Torso, the ballet dancer, because she's like, oh, she's not in love with any of those men. But then she also kind of relates to Miss Lonely Heart. So I think we could even see that in the connection of, you know, Miss Torso is a beautiful young blonde, so is Lisa. But then Lisa wears the green because she feels like Miss Lonely Heart, like, as far as in love sometimes, because Jeff is kind of giving her a hard time, if we're going to be honest. Right. Like, she's clearly in love with him, and he's not really giving her what she needs in return. Right. And, you know, at first, when I saw this movie a month ago, I was, like, really mad at that. And I was like, he's such an asshole. And, like, what a horrible relationship. But then when I view it, when I viewed it again, I, like, had a little bit more empathy. And I was like, I, I don't know. I guess these are just kind of normal relationship problems. Like, I see both of their sides a little bit better now. Yeah. I always had a little empathy for um, Jeff in that relationship. And, of course, Lisa, you know. Yeah, and it's I think it's very realistic because you have those like fears of like, oh, well, if I get married, can I still have adventures? Like it's a very real fear, especially at that time, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, then but- it's it's like Lisa just proved him wrong because he had all these ideas of what she's supposed to be. And she's like, no, let's go. I want a suitcase. All right, I'm down. Like, you know. Yeah, but I still, now I do get his hesitation because, you know, on the surface, their lives aren't that compatible because he would have to travel all over and it wouldn't be glamorous. And then how would she do her work, you know, because nowadays models can travel all over, but I don't think it was quite as much like that back then. It was like you were more based in one of your big city hubs. And yes, you did travel, but not to the extent he did and like, maybe not necessarily like in these like remote locations that he was talking about like the jungle right and it's like he loves her so much that he doesn't want to marry her right but then he doesn't want to make her a wife you know what that was but what I don't like is I do I think he treats her a little bit badly sometimes that's the intention like he makes her feel bad about herself which I that's the part I really don't like certain things he says and like his sarcastic tone you know, he can make her feel kind of bad when honestly, she's great. So he shouldn't do that. That would be my main critique of them. No, and I completely agree. And there's a part of me and I don't mean this at all to excuse him or his behavior in that sense. But I'm like, I wonder if we were in 1954, what we would think of him. True. Like, would we think, oh, he shouldn't talk to her that way? Or would we be like, oh my God, he's so amazing. Like, I don't know. Like, it's really interesting to think about because we have a 2020 mind. Yeah. In terms of the relationship and everything in general, it's hard to think in a mindset that we weren't even alive for, but, you know. I do have to say, you know, his nurse who's played by Thelma Ritter, I can't remember her character name, but she is constantly like, yeah, what are you talking about? Lisa's literally perfect and wonderful and beautiful and amazing. 
Yeah. And you're just crazy. So I'm like, That's I think true. maybe so she's, they still- she's the 1955 voice for us. Yeah. Well, yeah, because truly, like, Lisa has it all. So people are like, you're so insane. Like, she's perfect. And what's your deal? Right. Skipping back to the set, there were earpieces worn on set because that is how Hitchcock had to communicate with all of the actors. So they were little tiny flesh-colored earpieces as far as, like, the further away people go. And that's how he would cue them because there were, like, a lot of set cues and stuff like that that they had to be aware of and Hitchcock basically stayed in Jeff's apartment the whole time to direct them because everything is really supposed to be from like originating within that apartment from Jeff's point of view right and even the whole film kind of like you know the gaze is from there outward yeah we we never see the perspective from the other side we never look exactly. into Jeff's apartment we always look out of Jeff's apartment with the camera work it's very deliberate which I, I think is so genius exactly and what's really great about this film is that the entire thing takes place within the apartment and the basically within his apartment but we do see the entire building but we never leave that which um Hitchcock almost had a scene at the beginning where uh, Jeff is at his editor's office and then he cut it later because it just didn't make sense. He was like, oh, why would we take it out of this apartment building, an apartment? Right. And so they actually used the dialogue they shot in the editor's office for the phone call with the editor. Okay. The and then also Miss Torso basically lived in her actual apartment during the shoot. Like, she would just stay there even when she wasn't filming her scenes, like all day that she was on set, she'd be in there because it had everything she needed. Right. Had water, it had electricity. And I think that would probably help you stay in character just to be living in your apartment, which is basically your role of what to do. Right. Um, And you're already at work. (laughs) Exactly. So like she didn't need to like leave and go to her dressing room. She would just stay there. Uh, She also all the dancing she does like that wasn't choreographed by anyone else. It was just her dancing. She choreographed it. She did it because he wanted that feeling of realism like, oh, I don't want it to be like a choreographed Hollywood number. I want it to be organic and like as if you were practicing and rehearsing within your own apartment. I love when directors let actors have space to just kind of explore. And so I like that Miss Torso got to do the dance moves herself. I do too. Um, and another fun thing is uh, Miss Torso is dancing to Leonard Bernstein's Fancy Free Ballet score, which is once again extremely appropriate. And it makes a lot of sense. And as a ballet dancer, I just think that's a really fun detail. Which brings me to one of my favorite things about this film that I learned from it is that basically all of the sound in this movie is something called diegetic sound, which means that it flows from the narrative world of the visual story. So in simpler terms, everything you hear, the characters can also hear in the movie and it is originated from the characters in the film. I love that because I know we talked about it in Marie Antoinette, our yes. podcast. I think it's so cool to pay attention. And this is something I'm doing as we've started the podcast. Like I never really paid attention to it until now. And mm-hmm. it's so brilliant how much sound changes 
the feeling of a movie because it does the piano player play everything we hear is just I don't know it's again chef's kiss when it comes to filmmaking well it is because okay I I totally appreciate diegetic and non-diegetic or otherwise known as commentary sound which is the opposite of diegetic which would be like you know, like a movie score. It doesn't come from within the world. It's laid on top of the movie. I totally appreciate both. And I think there's a time and a place. But with this movie, the diegetic sound, I think it lends an amazingly poetic quality about life. Because it's like, wow, there's this composer and we're having a romantic date night. And he's playing this like beautiful music that honestly feels really appropriate for the Lisa Jeff relationship because it's beautiful but it's also kind of sad because they're kind of at this place where they are having a conflict in their relationship that isn't allowing them to move forward in their love. And I think sometimes that kind of thing can actually happen in real life. Not all the time, but those are the beautiful little moments when something naturally happens that is artistic and poetic in life. I think the choice here also just adds further to the idea that we see this all from Jeff's perspective. That we are a voyeur with Jeff. So like everything we see is throughout his window. Everything we hear is what he hears. It kind of like adds another layer of like we are the voyeur with Jeff. Yes. Yes. You're totally right. And I think it also is like a beautiful love letter to New York and how busy and bustling the city is. Because I don't think this would have worked super well or at least in the same way with a film set in the remote countryside because you wouldn't have all this fun sound to work with but here it works perfectly yet in a movie with non-diegetic sound it can also work perfectly because it's not as connected and so it's put over and it's you know it's more like the director is like telling you something really specific with this you know it just it all right sound in general is just this amazing whole thing and the more I learn about filmmaking and the more that I write and you know, we do our own projects, the more I realize how important it is and how much it changes the feeling of a film mm-hmm. and how it just it adds like a deeper layer to everything. And now I notice when I watch a movie and there's no sound, it weirds yeah. me out. Like, I'm yeah. like, this is not good. I think it's no deliberate, sound. you know? Yeah, which when it's deliberate, it does create a cool effect because it makes it really eerie and like honestly kind of anxiety inducing. And if that's what yeah. you're going for, that's cool. Um, I also did want to mention that Wes Anderson is also someone who uses a lot of diegetic sound and I think made this version of it popular where it's like the character reaches down and plays the record or presses play on the iPod or turns on the car radio and then we hear that music. Uh, That's a form of diegetic sound and I think he really popularized that version where it looks a lot more deliberate like and it's kind of cheeky almost. Yeah and I I love it. I think it's it's a nice touch. Also, there was a song written for this. If you guys caught on at the end, there's this cute little song um, that says the name Lisa in it. And it was a song called Lisa written for the film, but it's supposed to sound like a tune of the time. I don't even know if that exactly qualifies as diegetic. I guess it does, but it's also like compared to the rest of the music in the film, which was from real life and of that time, it was like hits of the year. You know, there was like, I think like, Frank Sinatra playing or something so yeah that was a little bit more fictionalized but a lot of the stuff you were hearing like I said was from a real ballet was a real composer's actual music was hits from the day on the radio you know another thing is uh Grace Kelly 
refused to smoke in all of her movies. And this film, she's is the only one where she is seen with a cigarette. I don't know if she really actually smokes it, but it's in her hand and kind of implied. But she yeah. was not a smoker during that time and she didn't like it. So she did not do it. I love that for her. <laughs> I know. Which We were having this discussion, which I really liked because this was like, it was like a little light bulb in my head where we were talking about actors having boundaries. Yeah, we we were talking about that recently um, because I was talking about because I'm I'm newer to acting, so I'm like figuring out what kind of roles am I even interested in, and I've just been taking classes and just kind of thinking about what I want to have for my career as an actor and how like ten years ago. I would have felt so different about having a boundary, but now I'm like, no, these are very clear things that I never want to do. And if a role requires it, then I'm just like not interested and it's totally fine. Cause like there's other people who could totally do the role and like be amazing at it. You know, which I felt differently as well some years ago. And it was just this really honestly not very evolved way of thinking that I had where it was like, Oh, like, you're not dedicated enough if you won't do anything for it. But now I'm like, that is so crazy. Like what kind of mindset is that? That's extremely unhealthy. Yes, there is a perfect person for every role. So if that's not in your comfort zone, then it doesn't need to be for you. And I think that's a much healthier way of thinking. So I thank you, Lena, for bringing that point up to me. Um, You know, and everybody's boundaries are going to be different. And so, you know, just because I'm comfortable with something that you're not, you know, I'm probably going to have something that I'm not comfortable with that you would be like, I'm just going to put it out there. For me, I have realized that something I would not do for acting, because I also act as well. I don't think I would be willing to gain lots of weight or lose lots of weight, because I, I grew up doing ballet. And for me, that would be a really traumatic issue for me, which for some actors, it would be no big deal. But for me, that would cause a lot of psychological damage. Right. Because I already suffer from, you know, like body dysmorphia due to ballet. So that would be my boundary. And for other people, I'm sure that's fine for them. And you should never have to do that. And hopefully we move forward in an industry where your weight as an actor isn't really something people think too much about unless it's like so specific for the story or something. Like, Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, like the roles where you're like supposed to be so skinny that you're dying or like something it's relevant you know which I think a lot of actors have gotten huge publicity for doing that you know it creates Oscar buzz and yada yada which is fine but I just think yeah once again you need to know your boundaries even in your art you yeah, don't and have to like kill yourself for and, it right and for me it's like I would never do a sex scene like sorry that's a boundary for me that I will never cross like I have my religious beliefs. That's why I wouldn't do it. And besides the religious belief, I just don't think I'd be comfortable with portraying something like that on screen, something very personal. It's just not for me. And, you know, other people might feel differently and that's fine. And the funny thing is, like, I don't feel comfortable doing that as an actor, but would I feel comfortable writing about it? Yeah. Like writing about it is so different. So it's a different boundary for a different form of expression. Yeah. I just want to like, you know, offer to our listeners that perspective and just knowing that boundaries do not equal limits for you and it's just a chance to give another actor an opportunity who is comfortable with that 
And there are plenty of successful actors these days who have boundaries, which I think is a newer concept because it used to be like, you know, sell your soul to the devil to be successful or. Right. <laughs> which right. I think, like, if you really want it to be an actress, you have yeah. to do this, you have to whatever. And it's like, do you though? Like reevaluate that. Yeah. Cause I mean, look at Grace Kelly. Exactly. She's in Rear Window, a Hitchcock film, and she doesn't even smoke the cigarette. She holds it. That's like yeah. a compromise of the boundary, I would say, yeah. but still hasn't been crossed because we don't actually ever see her smoke it. So Yeah, which I want to give you a good example in case you're like, I don't know, I still don't believe you. Um, okay, I might screw up his name. Mahershala? Mahershala. Mahershala. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't do sex scenes. And he, I think he like is an Oscar nominee or won an Oscar. He's a great yeah. actor, super well known, you know, big roles, big movies, great work. So yeah, and I, he's, I recently saw that. And that's what even inspired this conversation that we had initially was he is in David Lynch's new movie. And initially there was a sex scene uh, written for him. And he was like, look, like, I don't do this. And so David Lynch was like, okay, and just like cut out the scene. Yeah. Will that happen every time? Maybe, maybe not. But if it doesn't happen, it's not a role meant for you. And if it does happen, amazing. Cool. It is for you. Right. Exactly. But I think it's important to know what your boundaries are and to stick with them. Yes. I 100% agree. And don't (laughs) be afraid to have them and think it will hold you back. You got to be true to yourself. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Now that we got on that. Going back to some fun facts, the writer John Michael Hayes of the screenplay was encouraged by Hitchcock to spend time with Grace Kelly. So that kind of equaled out Lisa being a bit inspired by her, although she, the character Lisa was also in part inspired by John Michael Hayes' wife, who was a fashion model at the time. So it's kind of a little hybrid of his wife and actual Grace Kelly, which I think is really cool of the director to encourage the writer if there's like time allows and everything, you know, um, if that's what you want to have the character be based on the actress, because then you're going to get such like a genuine performance. Yeah. And I mean, we discussed earlier on the podcast that the Lisa character didn't even exist in the short story. So it was yeah. written for her in a lot of ways, too. Exactly. So it makes total sense in this instance to have the writer do this with the actor. Yeah, so I really like that. From all accounts, Grace Kelly was just a wonderful, magical, kind person. Like everybody on set, I've only read good things about her. Nothing bad, except for I did read some accounts of like people were a little scared of her because she was apparently like somewhat of a liberated, sexually free woman. So people, that's the only bad thing people had to say. (laughs) Which Um, like in 2020, you're like, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because she had, like, affairs with a lot of her um, co-stars. So it kind of, like, freaked out uh, James Stewart's wife because she knew that. And Grace Kelly had given an interview that she said James Stewart was one of the most handsome men she had ever seen or attractive men. So that was good. But, like, you know, I don't think she really did anything wrong there. Yeah. uh, you know, James Stewart loved working with her. And he said, like, every day people would just, like, wait for her to get on to set because she just had such good energy, which I really feel that from her. I know yeah. talking about her a little bit earlier and, like, she was never my favorite growing up because I didn't think she was, like, the most fun and exciting. And I was, like, into, like, a little bit bigger 
flamboyant characters. Like I was like a Liz Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, Audrey Hepburn, not that she was flamboyant, but she just had her own thing going. And then, you know, Hedy Lamarr. I don't know if I said Rita Hayworth. Those were my people. And so Grace Kelly, I just, I don't know, for some reason I thought she was boring as a teen, but now that I'm older, I really appreciate her and I can sense that really good energy within her. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, also, you guys remember the scene where she brings uh, Jeff dinner. Yeah. And it's this fancy lobster. So this meal is almost 100% likely to be from the famous Musso and Frank's, which is on Hollywood Boulevard. It's an awesome restaurant, and it's it was super popular during that time period. And it was actually one of Hitchcock's top two favorite restaurants. So Musso and Frank's and Chasen's, which I don't think Chasen's is around anymore, but you can totally go eat at Musso and Frank's. So if you're from LA, go do it after the pandemic. If you're not and you're visiting, it's a super cool restaurant to go to. It just screams like old Hollywood energy and vibes when you go. I need to go. I need to go post pandemic. I really want to. And the way that it was found out that the meal was from Musso and Frank's is because they knew that those were Hitchcock's top two favorite restaurants and they looked at the menus of Chasen's and Musso's and they didn't have that sort of lobster dish on the Chasen's menu but it was on the Musso and Frank so they're like that's totally what they catered over you know so I I really loved that detail because like I said I just love like the really connectedness of all the details James Stewart served in World War II in real life as an Air Force pilot which his character um, it's kind of, I think, talked oh, yeah. about. Yeah. He, I'm pretty sure was in an Air Force because I thought they talked about being in a plane. With yeah, and I think we see oil. some pictures of him. Yeah, yeah, so those honestly could have been real pictures, I'm not sure, of James Stewart in World War II, which I think is really cool because it was actually very common for um, movie stars back then to also serve in the war which I just am not sure if that would happen today in the same type of way. I feel like it wouldn't. <laughs> I'm just I, like, and I get it because our wars are really different now. And World yeah. War II, I just think, was more of a cause that people could get behind. Yeah. And it was more noble. And today it's a little bit murky. More complex, yeah. Yeah, so, but I, it was totally a thing. Like, tons of leading men served in World War II back then. I have, like, the littlest things to talk about now. Basically, we see a lot of little moments where Jeff is itching his cast with this little scratcher. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And um, that's extremely realistic also because I have had cast before. I broke my little wrist as a kid. And it is so itchy and unbearable. And you're really not supposed to itch under it. But everybody does because it is terrible. (laughs) Okay, thank God, like, knock on wood, like, I've never broken anything. I've had surgeries before for other things, so I've definitely had my fair share of hospital time. You've had your medical issues, yeah. Yeah, I've never broken anything, and, like, the idea of having it be itchy, I'm just like, oh, my God. And that was the other thing, too, is, like, at the end of the movie, both of his legs are broken, and I'm always like, how does he go to the bathroom? Yeah, because the cast was, like, up to his hips. I was so confused. I don't even know what's happening there. So that is was that even realistic or is that just like movie, like makeup, okay. makeup, like science stuff? I'm thinking there was a hole in the cast in the necessary areas, but it was on his hips otherwise, because maybe he broke a hip along with the leg. Oh, that makes sense. Like it doesn't have to actually be covering. It could just be yeah. 
there and then also terrible terrible there was a quote I loved that you know Jeff said about Lisa he said if only she was ordinary and I just thought that was the most crazy funny thing ever like wanting someone to be ordinary knowing you have someone in front of you who's beyond ordinary but wanting them to be ordinary right (laughs) crazy uh I also noticed I really liked this which I recently have like dived back into acting class and I noticed with both Grace and James that they kind of had these moments where they didn't like have their lines perfectly they almost like flubbed a word a little bit but it was okay and they just kept going with it because they were so in the moment but I noticed that this time around Oh, I haven't even noticed that at all. It's so subtle, but just because I'm like way more tuned into acting, it's like they yeah. kind of like stutter, stutter or stumble on a word. Like even I just literally did it myself right now where you kind of like don't pronounce it all the way right or like yeah. but that happens in real life. So they just kept going with it. And I think it's interesting that they used that take, you know, oh, cool. but it happens in real life and it's not a super big deal, but it's kind of it gives it this naturalistic acting style, which I also think is a bit different from other films of this time period since we're on the subject uh we have to talk about this transatlantic accent that uh, yes. james stewart has <laughs> i didn't even notice it as much on him as i did on grace kelly yeah <laughs> yeah i love the transatlantic accent i think it's just such a crazy thing that occurred in american cinema that they just had to invent this whole thing for the movies. But I love it. I think it's a beautiful accent. I really want to learn it. I so, like I like it too. Like I like that it's beautiful accent. Like it's it's so cool and weird. <laughs> it is. And I really I just just as an accent itself, I think, you know, this mixture between American and British, it's like a very nice place. Another thing that I have to mention before moving on is a movie that I hope we do on this podcast at some point. So please let us know if you're into it. So there is a movie from the 80s called Body Double. And it is by Brian De Palma. And it is basically his version of what he thought like a Hitchcock film would be if he did it. But it's like really cool because it's in the 80s. So it's, it's like it's almost like seeing a Hitchcock film if it was 80s style, which I love. And I've never has, seen this movie, and I really want to do this. It's so good, and Lena, you're going to love the shots. They are insane, and the reason I bring it up, though, is because, one, we're talking about Hitchcock, but two, it plays with the same idea of um, voyeurism, because the whole plot circles around a guy watching a girl through her window and thinking he witnessed a crime, and then it just gets more and more intricate and it's amazing. I love it. It's so weird and so great. We got to do it on here. So please, audience, tell us you want it. If, even if the audience doesn't want it, I'll, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but wait till we do it on this. It's so, yeah. so good. And just like all of the beautiful 80s decor and shots like that you love, Lena. Um, okay. And then speaking of other like modern day adaptations of Hitchcock, another recommendation is A Perfect Murder from 1998 which stars Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow and it is actually kind of like a remake adaptation of Dial M for Murder which Mm -hmm. is a movie directed by Hitchcock which is one of the five lost Hitchcock films that was gone for 30 years but yeah it's basically the same storyline but set in the 90s which also super cool 90s aesthetic modern day Hitchcock film. 
I'll have to watch that one as well. I because I really like Hitchcock. I I knew who he was, but I didn't really ever get into his films until I took the class, and that's mm-hmm. where I got my like intense Hitchcock education. And that's where I learned like, oh wow, Hitchcock really is a big deal, <laughs> like for yeah. a reason. Okay, I did want to mention that for me, I kind of felt like all of the shots in this film of the neighbors that weren't in the apartment looked like life magazine shots, which I thought was kind of cool because I feel like that's what magazine, what type of magazine would work for. That's so cool. And we see it through his eyes, but we're seeing it almost like a life magazine. Lifetime. I think it's called Lifetime Magazine Shot. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I like that. I like that added detail. Like, I, it's just so cool to, like, unravel all the layers that this film has because there's so many and all the details that Hitchcock has in it. It's, I don't know. It, like, excites me as, like, a filmmaker to, like, see all these things. Right. And I get more every time. And I just love that. Uh, the last thing I just want to mention and talk about for a second is the age gap love situation yeah (laughs) so in this movie grace kelly is 25 and james stewart is 46 he's 36 40 46 like three six four six four six okay i was like what in what world is he 36 dude looks 60 (laughs) no 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 these are their actual ages which i felt the same way as you lena i was kind of like um he doesn't even look 46 oh like what he looks much older I don't know if that was like the smoking of the days, but I feel like men from movies in the ba- about 40s to 70s, they literally look so much older than they actually are. And not like in an unattractive way, but they just look older. And I'm like, what? Right. Even Grace Kelly like gives me 30 vibes. Yeah, she really does. It's so funny because I'm like, as millennials, do we, because we've just been so like, screwed over by life that everything is so delayed for us that we're like she's in her 20s like what like I know (laughs) yeah so it's it's just like a weird situation and um I don't know Lena did they look natural to you together like did you even notice their age gap or not just I'm I definitely noticed an age gap but it didn't really like bother me or like was like ooh, what is that or anything like that just because like okay. in the 1950s it was so common to have age gaps like my parents have like a 11 12 year age gap not that they were married in the 1950s it's like when they were born but like um they have an age gap and it's like so normal in a lot of like cultures like from that time and just like yeah. it was a big deal I guess that's like something I've realized over the years um, because they're like 21 years apart. That's pretty hefty. Um, And then I am in an age gap relationship. And, you know, I remember when it was newer, it was like more of a thing. And when I had to like tell my family, it was like, oh, my God. Yet my grandma was like so chill about it. And I was really surprised because I was like, oh, you know, grandmas are more conservative and stuff. But then yeah, I realized, oh, it's because this was normal in her time. Right. Like, it was very normal to have an age gap. It maybe stopped being normal more with, like, my parents' generation, who I think are, like, maybe one generation below your parents, because they were young parents. So I'm like, okay, I guess the 90s or 80s babies. I I think it has to do with um, 
women empowerment because once women were able to make money themselves and the money was no longer fully responsibility of men in terms of society structure Mm -hmm. that men could get married younger because women Mm -hmm. could also contribute Mm -hmm. financially because in like the 50s like if you have to think about it it's like the man was in charge of being able to like afford a house and all that and like everyone doesn't really get to that place in their career where they could buy a house until like you're in your 30s really not really so much in your 20s yeah and And support a family and a whole nother adult human yeah yeah and then for women it's like you want to get married younger so that you have more time to have a baby because like that was kind of like your role in this system was like have the kids Mm. and the men was like to take care of finances so it makes sense then you have like a gap yeah I'm glad it's not still like that but you're making sense right because like I don't know I feel like nowadays everyone looks at age gaps and like oh they're grooming and they're blah 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 and it's like sometimes yes but also a lot of times no yeah (laughs) literally like my whole philosophy for life like there's lots of gray situations so make sure you really look at them yeah exactly and don't just generalize every relationship with an age gap as being something that it's probably not yeah which I feel like is going to be controversial to say but yeah I I mean, you have to look at the situation <laughs> of course like we're not we're saying like of course there is it happens it happens and there is grooming and it's creepy and like why are I think to like this I don't mean to be judgmental but to me it's like it's weird when people in their 20s hang out with high schoolers. Like, that's very weird. Like, there's, there's like, a difference between that versus, like, being grown and, like, making decisions. And everyone's different. Like, being grown is a different age for everybody. Because some sure, people sure. feel grown at 18. Some people feel grown at, like, 25. Like, it just varies person per person. So you can't even generalize that it's the same for everybody. Which I will say the last thing on this is I find it so funny, though, sometimes when people are like, oh, there's such a huge age gap. And it's like a 35 year old woman with like a 50 year old dude. And it's like, that's true. Like, she's a grown ass woman. (laughs) Like, she can make her own decision. She's not being groomed. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You know? And we, some of my favorite celebrity couples have an age gap. I love Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas. You brought them up earlier. Yeah. They have a huge gap and they're still going, you know? All right. I think that kind of concludes the discussion if we're ready for a couple questions. I did want to know, though, like, what is your favorite Hitchcock film in general? Because we picked Rear Window for this episode, but we're definitely going to explore other ones because he's such a great director. Yeah, I love this question. Um, I have grown to appreciate this one more and more, so it's definitely up there. But my all-time favorite is definitely Vertigo. It's a good one. It just it it emotionally really resonates with me, and the lighting and the music are just amazing. Which there you go, that's non-diegetic sound. That's a beautiful um score by I think Bernard Herman. Is that his name? Yeah, I. Yeah, and I know you love this one too. So what I'm curious, I do. I do. I do love Vertigo, but I'll I'll talk about a different one. Um, 
which I think we should do Vertigo for the podcast. Maybe season two. I think we should do yeah. Vertigo. Yes. My other one that just keeps popping up into my mind is Psycho. Like, okay. I really like Psycho. And it's, I know, one of the most iconic films of all time. And that shower scene is, like, super duper iconic. And I just, I love Anthony Perkins, right? That's that his name? Yeah. The actor? Yeah. He's so brilliant to me. Like, he's so good. And I don't know, like, just the shock at the end. Like, I had no idea. And I was like, (gasps) it was just like, so I don't know. It blew me away as a film. So I think that's pretty high up there. But I also like North by Northwest and The Birds is good. And I mean, everything he does is like brilliant. So I'm not mad about any of his movies. Um, But I would have to say Psycho. Yeah, I hope that you viewers will let us know what your favorites are. We'll add some polls on the Instagram. Yes, we would love to hear which ones you personally love. Okay, can I ask a question? Yes, of course. Do you have a favorite scene or shot set up that stood out to you? Ooh, if you have one, go ahead first while I think. Okay, so my favorite shot in this whole movie is... uh, when Grace Kelly is in her green outfit that is oddly very similar to Tippy Hedren's in The Birds, like a little green suit. Um, and she sits down or lays down. I don't think it's his couch. I think it's his like hospital nurse bed or something. But she lays down and she's in front of him in the foreground and then he's sitting behind her. There's just something so beautiful about that shot and it just it's just epic to me like it reminds me of like a beautiful mountain line scenery but it's her (laughs) Um, Uh, that um, is literally the same exact shot I was about to say (laughs) good because it's the best one and we know it yeah like I I was thinking and then once you started talking I was like oh I know the shot I can't wait to talk about it and then you described it I'm like okay (laughs) there we go (laughs) more about why you love it if you have other details because I have a hard time even articulating why I love it so much I mean even the opening shot is so beautiful where you just kind of go through the neighborhood and you see all the neighbors and then you go into Jeff's apartment and you see all of his like camera equipment you see the leg that has like his name on it and then you see you know the broken camera and you see the race car picture so then you're like oh that's what happened and you see all the other pictures and you see like the model picture it's like you get like this great insight on Jeff as a character just from the opening shot and about what the movie's even gonna be and I I think that's so good so I really like that shot too yeah and then I just have to give honorable mention to basically all the shots of like Grace Kelly's entrances of any sort like They're just so stunning, and I think it really shows you what's special about her and what's special about her character that makes her so magical. Like, the fact that you can enter a room and just create a feeling and grandeur and entrance. When she walks in the door, when we first meet her, and she's in that gorgeous, glamorous dress, and then we get the close-up face or shots of her face looking at him lovingly. And she glows. I know it's the lighting probably, but they make her glow like an angel. And that's, I know I've said it before, but that's all I can think of. Like, look at this angel loving this man. He is so lucky. And 
you know, she's glowing in her cream-colored satin nightgown. It's it's just, it's so good. It's crazy how magical they can make those simple shots and how much of a dream girl she can look like. Yeah. I'm That's trying to powerful. Think, I mean, it is. It really is. And I'm I'm, like, trying to think of, like, if I have any question because I was going to ask like what your favorite outfit that Grace Kelly has in the film is but I like personally I love all of them and we've already talked about the green outfit yeah but we didn't talk about what it looks like when the jacket comes off and it's like um, a cream colored completely backless halter top Uh, so good (laughs) so good (laughs) and also I think it's with that outfit she comes in first with a hat and a white net veil on her face. And I love the idea of actually wearing that in your real life. And then you get to your boyfriend's house and you take off your veil and you take off your hat and you have this gorgeous <laughs> updo. And then you take off your jacket and boom, it's a backless, like, gorgeous I top. Like it. I know. Oh, we need the outfit. Where, where can I we need- buy that outfit? <laughs> yes. Edith Head, I applaud you. I mean, you are the queen and every film she costumes is like a stunning work of art so kudos to her but also I have to mention that the green outfit in the updo totally reminds me of Sharon Stone like I just thought like oh that's like such Sharon Stone vibes but Sharon Stone is like the evil twin sister of Grace Kelly (laughs) (laughs) that's how that's what I would but they give similar vibes but it's like the good angel sister and then the devil sister and I say that love because I love Sharon Stone but they give very similar energy just opposite ends of the spectrum and I I can see them I can see the like sexier outfits that Grace Kelly wears on Sharon Stone more than like the nice beautiful flowy dresses yeah you know the more sophisticated sexy ones so um I I think you know Sharon Stone definitely would have been a Hitchcock girl if they were like you know in the same time period no, for sure. I could definitely see that. One loved his one, so. Yes. And she was exactly right. So I'm making that call. I don't know. Maybe he's turning over in his grave, but I feel pretty <laughs> solid in this theory. I think that's it with the questions. Yeah, I don't have any questions. Part. I was going to ask if you did. No. No? So right. are you ready to give this a rating? Yeah. So I think this movie overall, I would give it a seven. I can't believe you're going lower than me. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm about to give it an eight or nine over here. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I think I would give it a seven because even though I love how it's all through his window, I have this weird thing. I you think do. I've talked about this before where I like a change of scenery in my movies. I just like moving out of a room. Like, I don't know yeah. what that's about. I need to explore that more as a creative, but. So that brings it down, even though I know that that was the correct choice for the film. I don't know. I I would just seven because it's not even my favorite Hitchcock film. So I I don't know. I think that has it going against it, too. Plus, like, I think the fact that I've never been to New York has Mm -hmm. lowered it for me because, like, I don't fully understand that, like, apartment courtyard life, like. None of the apartments I've ever lived in in LA have had a courtyard like that where I could really see my neighbors. So I think I'm missing that little element of it. Um, so like like always, my rating is 100% to do with me and my personal experience and what I bring to the film. 
And so I think for those reasons, I give it a seven. Yeah, I don't even think I can really explain mine because it's just it's hard for me to commit to like a one to ten scale because it just feels so, you know, relative. But I just the more I watch it, I see the mastery. I see, you know, how revolutionary that the set was in itself. And it's just the artistic qualities that put, bring it up there for me, even though there are more movies that excite me more personally or like give me more of an emotional response. I think it's pretty high up there as far as like the filmmaking goes. Yeah. So that's my reasoning. But, you know, it's like whatever. These are just throwaway ratings. I know. I, think I feel like it, tomorrow. Yeah, I know. I was going to say it just changes in the moment. Like in an yeah. hour, I might feel different, you know? Yeah. It's not, we don't have so to be attached to any of our ideas or opinions. We change and grow as people. <laughs> exactly. So don't take it too seriously. And now to our final segment, marry, screw, kill. Okay. So I think I would marry Lisa. Uh, I would screw um, maybe maybe like the, the neighbor, the newlywed neighbor guy, because they oh, they're like at it all day. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And then kill, of course, the murderer. Like, come on, he killed your wife and disassembled her. That's messed up, dude. So I would just I'd kill Yeah. Her. Um similar. I wait, I don't remember who you said you'd marry. Grace Kelly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I also marry Lisa because man, she's a perfect girlfriend. Like she comes over, she's sweet, she brings you lobster dinner. Like, she's so nice. Like, yeah. I love that Libra energy. So I'm sticking with my answer. She is a Libra. <laughs> and then I would screw um, L.B. Jeffries. And, I mean, Aquarius fun. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I would kill, I think his name's Raymond Burr, whatever, Mr. Thorvald. Because, yeah, yeah. Murdering, murdering your wife is not cool. Yeah. And also, I don't know. I know it's the actor and he's acting, but he does such a good job at irritating me, like as a person and giving me irritating energy. So oh, I know that last scene with him is so good with like the, yeah. eyes and the eye contact. Oh, so good. Yeah, so good. So those are my answers. Okay. I think that's all that we have for you guys today. Thank it you was for listening. Lot, but I had so much fun, you know, delving into this film and learning a lot of new things. Yeah, and as always, if you guys have movie recommendations, you can always message us on Instagram. Let us know what movies you think we should watch and talk about. But yeah, and we then, love feedback as well. So any feedback, any suggestions, we love it. Interact with us. Yes, please. We want to hear from you guys. Ta-ta for now. Bye. Bye.